0: Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. So this is the takeaway, as Catherine has said. um, There are a number of initiatives, uh, programmes, parts of government, uh, the public services that are uh, encroaching upon uh, Open Data or the Open Data brand or the term Open Data and I hope to give you a, a, a clue as to why that's a very, very bad idea. Uh, with this talk so as Catherine says um, the first lecture I gave with Terry Doughty um, was around the proposal that the government made back in 2012 late 2012 that they were going to open up the National People Database the National People Database being something that not many people know about but which is effectively a massive collection of uh, children's personal data information about children, highly sensitive information about children, that is gathered from the uh, information management systems of every school in the country on a now, I think, termly basis. So let's have a look at some data, uh, just to give you a clue as to what these are. You can see I've just taken a a single tab of a very large set of tabs that the National Pupil Database consists of, and hopefully you can see straight away that there are some highly sensitive pieces of information, fields of information here, things about physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, there are things about you know, asylum seeking, uh, and also there are uh, identifiers. Yeah? There are bits that um, will give uh, postcode, there are things that will allow you to track a particular individual through this data set. The NPD has existed for quite some years, and internally the Department of Health um, have a bunch of statisticians who understand this data, understand the sensitivity of this data, and had, who had already categorised it into four tiers. And what you'll notice from each of these four tiers of categorization of data uh, in the National Pupil Database, they recognise that each one, identifying, identifiable, identifiable, yeah? They didn't have any data in there that they thought wasn't identifiable. So the idea of opening this up, of providing this as open data, is frankly nuts. We'll see they have an internal process. These sometimes can be problematic. We didn't actually have to look uh, in too much detail at this because you know, the proposal was pretty resoundingly by ODI as well and others um, given a hammering. And they have decided not to open the national pupil database what this raises is some sort of key concepts one is this basic idea that simply by obfuscating data you obviate the need for going for people's consent yeah this is a very very insidious idea yeah? yes we can produce properly treated aggregate statistics that's fine that merely obscuring some details or removing some details does not obviate the need for consent, and certainly under the Data Protection Act, the need to inform people for fair processing. And Unfortunately, notification where it means you know, a few lines in the small print, you know, once at the beginning of term in a sheaf of papers, or once at the beginning of the school year in a sheaf of papers saying, well, your data is going to be going up to somewhere it can be shared onwards, That is not knowledge. That is not people knowing what is being done with their or their (coughs) kids' data. And there is also another really quite key idea here that if you do anonymise or start to remove or perturb the data in the data set, you start to degrade its utility. So it may actually be a silly idea to try to use these methods of obfuscation if what you want to do is proper research. What you should do is have proper processes, acknowledge that this is personal data, and there are ways that that can then be handled. So there have been other silly plans, silly ideas as well. I think some of you may have seen this one. This was an idea of not, um, not just kids' school records, but your tax records. Um, that's not me, that's a senior Tory MP who uh, classified this particular idea as borderline insane. Um, but that's not the only sort of stupid that's going on. Um, a few years ago, back in about 2008-2009, there was a Christmas tree of a bill going through government called the Coroners and Justice Act. Buried at Clause 152 was a very broad power to allow government ministers to effectively um, create arbitrary sort of data-sharing channels. Um, since then, there has been, you know, obviously a change of government, um, but the thinking inside Cabinet Office, at least, some of which is very good, some of it which is not so good, and a certain character that we'll be coming into contact with later in, in the talk, um, was pushing a transparency agenda, which actually boils down to a data-sharing agenda. I don't propose to spend very long on this slide because it's not open data, but they're looking at things at the moment such as improving research and statistics, um, somehow using data sharing, back-office data sharing, to f- sort out fraud, debt and error, which is lunacy. Um, if you understand anything about behavioural economics, you're actually incentivising fraud if you start doing back-office data sharing. Um, and talking about this tailoring or personalising of public services. But as I say, my main preoccupation at the moment is care.data. And various associated systems, the handling of NHS patients' data. Those of you who've seen some, of my um, sort of, I did a talk at the ODI, but it was a, it was a public meeting a few months back. May have seen a version of this diagram. Again, I don't propose to go into it in any length, but we can come back to it. What this shows is a very complex system of legislation which allows the new body, NHS England, to direct another new arm-length body to require your GP to upload identifiable data into a database from which some identifiable data can be got out for various uses and in which pseudonymised data may be passed on and sold. By the way, care data is not the only way that your data leaves your GP practice. The government say they've fixed it, or at least starting to fix it, uh, but unfortunately the legislation that is now passed um, adds in some pretty major loopholes. They say they've shut down you know, the, the uh, commercial use of your medical data, but unfortunately by rejecting an amendment that we and others, um, the, the Wellcome Trust, the Social Medical Research Charities and others you know, offered to them, uh, other members of Parliament offered to them to, to define Research use? No, nope, they decided they wanted to do promotion of health, so it can still go to the pharmaceutical marketers. And this is this year's price list. I mean, they're still selling your data. Yeah, this is the cost recovery price list for the medical data that HSCIC holds at present and is collecting, and we learned in the last week or so, is continuing to flow under some existing agreements loans to where? Well, this was one example uh, that we found. This is uh, an outfit called Harvey Walsh. Um, they service you know, back into the NHS, but also out to 30 or 40 pharmaceutical companies. They proudly boast to hold um, a, a billion, over a billion linked patient hospital epi- statistics records. Okay, That stuff um, should not have gone out the door for commercial Reuse why? Well, let's have a look at what some people have been doing with heads. This is, you know, pseudonymized data. Okay, so you don't see the actual person's name, but what you do start to see is a very detailed date by date, episode by episode breakdown of someone's you know, uh, care history. We've actually redacted some of the information that they were perfectly happy to post on the web. Yeah, an actual day dated event associated with a bunch of diagnoses and the other information that's here, this is an you know, 81 to 85-year-old woman going through a series of hospital visits, probably in the late stages of secondary cancers. And you know, all these numbers here, Okay, they look like they're obscure, but you can just go to the web and look them up on the NHS's data dictionary. You can find out where she's having an ovary removed. Okay? So this sort of stuff, they've said that's fine. I think most patients would feel being observed or tracked Why pharmaceutical companies or whoever, you know, on a day-by-day visit, set of visits through hospitals is starting to get more than a little creepy. The fact is that patient-level health information, information, rich information about someone in their life to do with their medical um, medical events, it's inherently identifying. We all have a unique pattern of events that have happened through our lives. This stuff is just hospital visits. The proposal for care.data is to add in large amounts of your GP (coughs) reports as well. That starts to become an incredibly identifying um, and identifiable set of data. So, for example, all you would need to get into this is a single event. Latania Sweeney over at Harvard has done this uh, on the American equivalent of of this sort of data, which is de-identified health insurance data. She bought a bunch and then went through it matching uh, events that were reported in local newspapers about people having car accidents and what have you, and was able to identify a significant number of people inside the data set that she had. Over in this country, we know, for example, that Nick Clegg's partner fell and broke her arm during the, the 2010 election campaign and we know which hospital she went to. That's diagnosis, woman of a certain age, actual hospital. That would be able to spot an event and then you can read off the whole row. That's the problem. Yeah. So, linked or episodic data is much more identifiable than you think. I'm talking about health records here but one of the probably best known examples is the films that you watch. The Netflix problem. When they put out a whole chunk of data that gave uh, the films that people had watched it was a relatively easy exercise to go to publicly available information mainly the sort of critic sites and start to spot people by the profile of the niche films that they had seen. Human behaviour is highly identifying. So my contention, and I think we're beginning to make progress on this argument, um, that pseudonymized that thing of replacing some identifiers in a data set with some you know, less obviously meaningful information, a, a number or something, or de identification, removing uh, particular pieces of obviously identifying information are, are not anonymous data yeah? Anonymous data <coughs> excuse me anonymous data is properly treated, aggregated statistics where you can 't find the person inside the chunk of data. It may be useful, may not be so useful what we're trying to do, but that's what anonymous data is, and that's what open data should be in most cases. Vast, vast majority. Personal data is not open data. The only time that open data includes personal data is when that personal data is mandated, when there is an actual law that says this particular individual should be identified and that's officials who make certain decisions, for example, or it is company directors. By virtue of their position and the influence that they can have on other people, it's been determined in law that you need to be able to find out who these people are. Generally in you know the civil service we're talking about you know, the top couple of tiers, you don't get to find out every single sort of civil servant's name, um, that's probably not entirely appropriate, but certainly Decision makers, people who can affect us in our lives, that is the sort of personal data that would make it into open data. But it is the only sort. So, I'd like to sort of wrap up or get towards the finish by something that's happened literally in the last 48 hours. 48, 72 hours. So, um, a gentleman called um, Tim Kelsey, who is the Director of Patients and Information at uh, NHS England, um, well, NHS England commissioned... A, a report, a policy document, from New York University, for some reason. Um, and we don't know why they think UK academics don't know enough about this stuff, but they did. And this NHS England report, which, as I say, has, a, has an introduction by Mr Kelsey, um, is a blueprint, they say, to develop research and learning programme for the open data era in health and social care. It all sounds very good. Until you actually read it. Now, this is a problem. This is a big problem. It's a problem for us all as patients and citizens and and human beings. But it's a problem specifically, I say, for the open data community. We already know that the Open Knowledge Foundation is taking this very, very seriously. I know Catherine said that they're in touch with GovLab. This is something that has to be stamped out. Open data is a relatively new term. You know, it's, it's a sort of you know, early stage brand if you like. Yeah? It's not manifested in law like personal data or privacy which is recognised as a fundamental human right. It is trying to carve out a space. If that space is polluted by people who have different agendas, yeah, you are going to lose your brand the value of what you are doing, the message that you are trying to get across about open data. Now, we do our bit. Whenever we see stuff like this, we defend open data. But this needs to be done more by the community because it's happening all over the place. And as I said, there's bits of government using open in very loose ways to describe things that they are doing which are very definitely not open. This was just blatant. Semi-open. Um, it is quite ridiculous. And and for the purposes of their conceptual framework, this we're talking about policy document or a quasi policy document, you know, they decided to include both open and semi-open data. That was that was nice of them. Um, but you know, the key difference that is between this semi-open idea that they had and open data is not that it's you know open data's in a fully downloadable format. Yeah. It's that what they refer to as semi-open data, as I hope I've shown you, contains personal data. So this is where we've left it at this morning. Um, They have reissued the document, I think. I got a copy on the train. And they've changed the term semi-open to something a little bit more sensible, restricted data. I think that's probably a bit more reasonable in terms of how you are going to define the sort of data that contains all of our medical information so um, it was a bit of a whistle stop tour but I'd rather sort of leave some time open for questions and to get into it and we'll zizz around the slides but I just want to leave you with this set of thoughts there are techniques yeah there are data treatment techniques. Pseudonymization is one of them. Pseudonymization is necessary. For the transfer of data, endpoint to endpoint, it is very sensible to remove or conceal or obscure identifiers which would make the data spontaneously identifiable by someone who just slaps eyes on it, yeah, containing your name or address or in the context of, say, a healthcare setting where someone can look up a, an NHS number on PDS and like personal demographic service and get you know, loads and loads of information about the person, you know, where it's trivially uh, re-identifiable. You know, pseudonymization is necessary, but it is not sufficient. The problem that we've had is that people you know, who don't really understand this stuff and who are driving policy have been saying for quite some time, that pseudonymisation is fine. You know, they blur the line. They say pseudonymised, well, it's anonymised. It's not. Similarly with de-identification. If you take away bits of information, yes, you will tend to make, you know, again, a record maybe a bit harder to identify in the respect of that particular identifier, yeah? but that doesn't get rid of all the other rich data that is in there and it's that which starts to create if you like a fingerprint, a data fingerprint to identify a person and if you can get in you know, if you can just get into one single event as I've said, then that can expose a whole bunch of stuff it may not be that the event that you use to get into someone's line is the most <coughs> embarrassing thing about them in fact, it probably won't be. Yeah, but if all of our medical records are taken up into a system, which, as we you know, currently stand, it is not clear exactly what the protections are. We've been working very, very hard, and we actually sit on the advisory board to this thing now. Um, but you know, working very, very hard to think about exactly how you treat this. You know, national treasure which is the entire population's medical records no one is denying that there might be you know, great benefits to be derived from this but the problem is those have not been balanced up against the great risks the greatest risk of which is the shattering of trust yeah? because in a medical context, in a health context if you shatter trust, if a patient cannot trust that when they go to see their doctor that what they say to their doctor is going to be kept in confidence then patients will start to withhold information or doctors may not put information into the free text fields of the notes that they take and this starts to put people's actual health and lives <coughs> at risk so this is important this is a process that must go all the way through and we'll think about this in the round it's not sufficient just to use a technique like pseudonymization, and say, yeah, that's fine. Okay, thanks very much. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.